Welcome, People First Leaders. This is your weekly special episode of the Leading People First podcast, where you get to listen in on the honest and most likely uncomfortable conversations from our latest Leaders for Equity, Allyship, and Diversity event. If you are frustrated, saddened, bewildered, disgusted, or feeling any other emotions due to the hate, violence, inequity, and injustice in our society, you are not alone. The Leaders for Equity, Allyship, and Diversity host weekly events to allow these leaders to come together, discuss, learn, share, and activate to make a difference in the world. What you're about to listen to is a presentation by Tom Bailey, who talks about why he decided to be the change and is activated as an ally for DEI within organizations. If you want to learn more and be empowered to act, you'll have to join us at our next event. We meet every Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 Pacific. Listen to the end to get some more information. So get ready to come together and lead, and let's dive on in. So our amazing, amazing host, Tom Bailey, retired from the Navy as a captain and submarine officer in 2005. Uh, He was operations officer for the U.S. Pacific Fleet, where he was responsible for over 200 ships, 2,000 aircraft, and 219,000 Department of the Navy members. Upon retirement, he began his tenure as a faculty member at the Graduate School of the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, to initiate a special project for the head of the Navy to restore the Navy's expertise in theater-wide naval operations. This initiative became the fastest growing part of the college and was formally named the College of Operational and Strategic Leadership, or COSL, because we know the military likes an acronym. (laughs) In 2007, as the second dean, Tom hired the college's first African-American female faculty member in its 126-year history. In the process, his curiosity for diversity and inclusion grew, driving his interest and passion to focus on this area in order to improve organizations as well as those who have been underrepresented. He was chosen to be a member of the Navy's Strategic Working Group on Diversity and Inclusion, where he was a catalyst for changing the priority on inclusive leadership. As a result, senior Navy leadership has recognized its diversity and is now, that its diversity is now its competitive advantage. He was awarded Department of Navy Meritorious Civilian Service Medal for his work as the Dean of the College of Operational and Strategic Leadership. He has a BS from Texas A&M in Radiation Protection Engineering that's interesting, and an MA from the U.S. Naval War College in National Security and Strategic Studies. In his free time, he enjoys open ocean swimming, not ironic, and tinkering with new technology, but not at the same time because electrocution is real. So without further ado, Tom Bailey, cultural preneur, diversity expert, super decent human being, and lover of Naval Red. Which is what the color of his shirt is, we decided. Yeah, the, my camera's really got it on fire tonight. Um, th- thanks, Sarah. And uh, good evening, everybody, wherever you might be. Um, what I wanted to talk about tonight is my journey into this and how I got started in it, which is my journey into DEI as a white guy. And uh, as Sarah mentioned, I started out in the Navy and you see that that's my submarine that I was a CEO of the Santa Fe at the top. And down below is when I was getting promoted to be a captain back in a few years back. Um, but uh, that's really focusing on being a member of the Navy as a profession and, and thinking about it differently. Cause we have a lot of pilots, ship drivers and stuff like that, but it, it's really about, being a naval officer. And then on the right, I, I went into academia at the, the Naval War College. And for those of you familiar with Newport, Rhode Island, when you uh, go over the bridge into Newport, it's that big place right on the waterfront to the left of the bridge. That's the, the War College. And at the, the top is a small subset of what was the College of Operational and Strategic Leadership, which was the Leadership and Ethics Department that we had very uh, mixed matrix or uh, mixed multidisciplinary group. We had a uh, retired Navy chaplain with two doctorate degrees, three master's degrees. (laughs) We had a psychologist, 
a organizational behavior specialist, uh, a philosopher, and a couple of other types that really studied the, the human psyche and, and what it means to be a human being. And you see the one black female in the group right standing right behind me. I'm in the, the lower right-hand corner. And her name's Olinda, and she was the person I hired as the dean. And, and when I brought her on board, she said, well, I asked her first, I said, what can we do to make you successful here? Do you have anything that we can do to help you during your, your time at the college? Um, and she said, Tom, my only ask is don't let them make me the diversity person. And I said, okay, Olinda, tell me about this a little bit more. And she told me how frequently in a large white male organization like the college was, um, that's seen a lot of times as tokenism. Uh, and it may not even be a credible person. It's really dependent on the personality of whether they can move it, the, uh, the needle forward. And so I asked her, well, who, who should be a person to handle diversity? And she said, a person like you. And that planted the seed. Now, at the time, we were really looking at what it meant to be a leader in the United States Navy, looking into all these things. And so we were doing a lot of research uh, in industry, in academia, uh, and other services in countries to see how people develop their leaders uh, for their organizations. And I, I started to see some connections here of what diversity should be, because when I was talking to Linda about this, she said, the first thing you gotta answer is this question of why. Why diversity? And this is the, the golden circles from Simon Sinek. I'm a big fan of his, but start with why. You know, you've got to answer the question, why is diversity important? Um, and it seems like a lot of places are chasing it. Um, and, and typically in the conventional way, we usually start out when we have an issue we're faced with, like let's say diversity. Um, we go after the what, what do I need to do? How do I do it? We don't even care about why is it? We just want it done. And we have heard that it's become a soundbite. Um, you know, we are a diverse organization. What do you mean by that? Um, we want diversity, we support diversity, um, things of that nature, but without understanding the why and what that entails. Um, here's a little cartoon about corporate diversity, or if you can't read the caption, it says there is diversity in our boardroom. Mark's incompetent, Larry's apathetic, and I'm judgmental, okay? That's their diversity. Um, that doesn't pass what we're really trying to get after. So I, I started this journey of what is diversity? You know, we hear these phrases so often, we support diversity and inclusion, but are you committed to it? And to the right, you see the bacon and the eggs. And you've probably heard this, you know, the, the chicken supports it but the pig is committed to the bacon and eggs. You know, so when, when you hear companies say that, are they really committed to what it means for diversity? And, and what does diversity really entail? And so you have to ask your, yourself, what does that mean? And to me, that was where the journey really started because I, I quickly realized diversity means differences. Like here you see one minus and three pluses, okay? What happens with differences? You know, how do these forces interact? Now I started out as Sarah said in college as a radiation protection engineering with my bachelor's um, to give you an idea a little bit of my age. My freshman year, I, I started out nuclear engineering and that's when Three Mile Island occurred. So I quickly switched majors to the safety side. <laughs> but in, from an engineering perspective, you know, when we look at how these things come together, um, it's not that easy because there is an art and science to bringing this together because diversity does mean differences. And with differences, whether it's different backgrounds, uh, your, where you came from, how you were raised, you're gonna have different thoughts. And we know how differences affect an organization. Just look at our recent political election cycle in organizations. There's diversity, two extremes, 
Um, how did that work for you? You've got the diversity. And I, that was where my discovery started to occur that a lot of the corporate organizations were just chasing diversity for diversity's sake. You know, and this would be so easy if we recognized that how these, force, how these differences come together if it was science, because opposites attract, okay? But, but we're human beings and that's not necessarily the case. And, and so we have this challenge. And I noticed that a lot of organizations were chasing diversity without recognizing one, why they wanted it, and two, what, what that entails. It means people are gonna be different. And, and do you really value diversity when you say that? What does it entail to accommodate all those differences? And so I, I started to see this connection with what was going on in the DEI world to what we were trying to do in leadership, because what leadership was all about was trying to bring things together. Now, the problem with the Navy was it was passive and reactive in how it approached leadership development. And I say leadership development here. Um, it's a closed organization. It's up or out. You can't come in laterally at the side at the top. You have to work your way up. But it was a passive system. We didn't do anything to help people grow in the organization in their leadership abilities. And, and what we did is we refocused the effort looking at leader development of who you are as a leader, not, not just the skills, but who you are as a leader and how you look at things. And we wanted this to be deliberate and proactive such that we would invest in our people as they join the Navy at the, at the entry level at the bottom and work their way up through the ranks for however long they might be there and, and do that in a deliberate manner. And there was a lot of focus on the individual, you know, as the leader, but it's, it's not all together. You know, what is a good leader got to be a, a hard question we had to answer is, is it a person that's liked by the people? Is it a person that gets things done? Um, you know, and then how do they get it done? Are they, do things get done on the backs of the people or do they inspire the people to come together? Or is the leader just a weak, ineffective person, but the team's too good and carries the weak leader. It's a hard thing to assess, but there was a lot of focus on the leader. And what was missing that I, I brought into the ingredients here was the team, the leader and the team and the culture come together on this purpose and how to bring these together is really a lot of what DE&I has to do too, focusing on this culture. It takes the whole team to do it. You can't win a football game with just a quarterback. You can't build a house just with a carpenter. You've got to have the diversity and you've got to bring it together productively um, because those differences, if you don't, it, it just doesn't work well and you can't get those things done right. And what I've noticed in this past year is as a lot of companies have jumped on board the DEI bandwagon, I mean, the number of positions that have opened uh, from a year ago, we're coming up on the, the day, May 25th here, when George Floyd was killed, that really woke up the world in this area of how many positions have opened up. But there's been a, a telling confession in the HR and DNI circles that we've been chasing the wrong thing, perhaps. Uh, read in a recent HR journal that we've spent billions of dollars on unconscious bias training. And what has that gotten us? It has not moved the needle too far. Um, we could, and, and I think some of this is because of how leaders try to move the ball forward. They love metrics. We love to measure things. We love to bend things. And, and so I can measure diversity and the focus was on diversity and how we count, you know, the different people of how we want to count them. Um, and I can count how many hours or how many people I've trained in this and how many people have done this. And it was all focused on level of effort, but not necessarily the outcome. Are the people really engaged? Unless you looked at the, the culture of the organization. And I think that's what they finally realized that, you know, we've been missing this inclusion part. And that's where I changed 
things around as the catalyst for the, the Navy on the strategic working group is this inclusion part is really the important secret sauce to bring it together. Um, if, if you don't do that, you're going to have friction in the organization. You're not going to have effective teamwork. You're not going to have good teams. Um, you really have to focus on this inclusion, and it's a leadership issue. Don't put this on HR shoulders. Don't put this on the chief diversity officer's shoulders. The best advice I got when I went to a conference with being a chief diversity officer is you're really the chief conscious officer for the leadership to be that voice in their ear of slowing their thinking down, asking them, what do you mean by we want the best talent and those type of things? And ask those questions to address these biases and, and be that independent observer that, that looks back at things and sees these things that you're unaware of. Now, Yvonne, you introduced me in, in some of your LinkedIn as when I told you I was a uh, recovering racist. As I was going through this journey, um, I grew up in a small town in central Ohio that was predominantly white, and we never even talked about race in my family growing up. And we had those typical uh, microaggressional phrases of we don't see color, we love all people and all that stuff. And I realized, and I can say this with this group, you know, I realized I've got some, I, I am a racist, but I'm recovering. There's a lot of things I learned that I was unaware of. Uh, a lot of things I inherited that I uh, didn't know I inherited. I didn't know what it entailed, like systemic racism. I inherited an education system uh, that didn't teach me the full story. Uh, I inherited a judicial system and a criminal process system that is not fair to everybody. I didn't recognize that I had white privilege. And when I, I mentioned this to my spouse, he said, do you really want to say that? And <laughs> that you're a recovering racist, especially when you're looking for a job. And he said, you, I don't think you want that floating around too much because if you're looking to lead a diversity organization in the diversity effort, uh, you don't want to be known as a racist. So maybe a better thing to say is uh, I'm a recovering human being of priv white privilege. And, and I recognize that part, but uh, you know, I, I recognize there's a lot of things I had to unlearn as I went through this journey and, and I'm still on it. Um, but so that this light bulb has come on in the HR world and, and, and you've seen the, the wind kind of shift of, we really need to look at this a lot differently. And I think that's a good thing. I, I really do because now they're starting to really understand what's going on in the organization and understanding the humanity and the human beings that work for people. And, and I think, um, in this age of Zoom and remote work, uh, the relationship between the employer and employee has changed a lot with the remote working because we're all invited into each other's homes. We recognize that the boss is a human being and she's got kids that she's trying to homeschool in the background or do their homework. And the, she realizes that the workers that she employs have challenges at home, maybe aging parents that they're caring for and things of that nature. And so I think there's a, a lot of hope and opportunity looking forward that the light bulb has come on finally to look at that and start to really look at our teams. And these are one of the phrases, you know, we've heard there's, there's no I in team. These are a couple of memes I've, I've pulled off the internet. Um, there is a hidden I in team and says it's the a-hole that you can see there, kind of like that. And there are three eyes and narcissistic. Uh, and I don't want to be political here, but uh, you probably know what that might mean uh, from recent times here. But I, I would say there is an I in team. It starts with the individual and how they identify. And then there's this issue of intersectionality. I had a, a great discussion with uh, somebody in a webinar the other day about intersectionality of looking at it through a lens because it, it's, it really appreciates the diversity of the human race, all of us. Um, and, and then how you self-identify 
on that. You know, if, if you have a person that's in your company, and let's say it's an amputee um, disabled veteran who's a female of color and Jewish and over the age of 60, you have checked a lot of boxes, okay? But how does she really identify? And, and so you have to really get down to that individual level and, and recognize who they are as a person. And, and it requires this degree of intentionality. And then this inclusion and how do we get to this inclusion? And we need to be ready to intervene as required when, when people aren't in this way to accommodate each other. And so what I've come to the realization is it really is about relationships. Leadership is a relationship, just like a marriage. Uh, it goes both ways from the top to the bottom and the bottom up to the top. It's based on trust, confidence, and communication and respect. And so we have to listen to each other to develop these relationships at the individual level to understand who they are and where they come from. And this requires active listening, of listening to understand, not to refute, which is so easy to do when we listen to the news every night, uh, depending on which station you might watch. And then we have to look at our own opinions, you know, our assumptions, our biases, our hidden biases, our blind spots. And then we have to consider the viewpoints of others. Somebody once said, um, I'm not good on famous people quotes, but it, the, the mark of an educated person is the ability to hold two opposite views concurrently. So to be able to understand those different viewpoints builds a stronger relationship. And then we have to explore this. And so when you put it all together, this is love. You know, and it, it sounds touchy-feely to a lot of organizations and companies, but it really means getting to that personal level that we value our people. And that's what one of the recognitions that the Navy, something the Navy recognized as they were going through this, they've always said our people are our most important resource, but it was not the first thing they ever talked about in budget talks to Congress necessarily. Uh, they didn't really put their money where their mouth was in a lot of this, and they didn't really focus on it. And they recognized in today's world, the technology edge that we enjoyed during the Cold War is razor thin. It can be gone in an instant. And we may have the best trained pilots and ship drivers and things of that nature, um, but it gets down to how our people can work together and capitalizing off that diversity to be able to outthink the challenger. And that's true for any organization. If you're going to outperform another organization, you've got to be able to harness that diversity in a productive way. Um, there's lots of statistics and stories out there that say diverse organizations or diverse boards outperform those that are not diverse. That's true if they have the inclusion. If you look that they don't have that inclusion, they're probably not diverse or they aren't diverse for very long. Uh, and, and they're probably not outperforming as they, the friction drives them apart. And so it, it really is critical to look at this from a perspective, I believe, of, of bringing the individuals together in that way. And so it really is a journey and it's not easy. Um, there's setbacks. As you see this road, there's gonna be little ditches in the road. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a nice smooth road. It seems to go forever. Um, you're never going to get to the top of that mountain, but you got to keep going in that direction. And that's the important thing is keep the direction going in that one direction. You know, we love to measure things. Again, those metrics come out of how do I measure progress in this? We don't measure the stock market. We look at indicators. We make sure it's headed in the right direction. Is it going up? Is it going down? And how fast is it moving? As long as it's going in the right direction, we like it. Uh, and that's what you've got to look at. We've got to push forward. And so to, to bring this closed, you know, there is gold at the end of the rainbow, perhaps. But it, and it's a beautiful journey if we do it right. You get to enjoy all the colors and all that. Uh, you get to meet a lot of people. And you get to know a lot of people and recognize people is what brings it all together. 
And that's what this really is all about because there is such a stigma attached to diversity and inclusion. When you bring that up that people just shut down, you know, it's like when you hear that you've got to go to mandatory training, uh, you know, 90% of the people just shut down when they make it mandatory. Uh, there's a stigma attached to it. So approaching it in different ways and perhaps not using the terms diversity and inclusion, but we really do value our people and, and doing that, that's where it needs to be. And I think people that work in this area are starting to realize that and leadership and companies across the country are starting to realize that. And it is a shift in culture that's got to occur in this. And so that's the end of my presentation. And I'd like to open it up to questions here, turn this part off um, and get some feedback. You know, do you think that we're in a transformation uh, right now in this area? And are we going in the right direction? Well, thanks, Tom. That was really actually really polished considering that you haven't used that technology before. Thank you very much for practicing. Does anyone out there have a question? I wrote down some on my own as well. Steve has a question. Okay, bring it on. So Tom, thank you for, uh, thank you for that fabulous uh, presentation. My question to you is really um, the issue of <clears throat> the results orientation of inclusion and and um, I always see inclusion as um, um, allowing individuals to feel like they belong to the community or the organization that they're part of. And, um, and yes, I agree that so much of <clears throat> what the results of, of the effort today really is really about making people feel belong, you know, having that feeling of belonging. And so having that is really part of the generation of trust and respect that oftentimes is required for people to feel like they belong into an organization and the results that then happen. Um, so um, I just wanted to you know, say that I think that in the current um, dialogue that's happening, I think there's just a lot more understanding of the need for allyship. And that's, I think that's kind of why there's the A and lead, uh, right? That, that uh, um, it requires people like you, Tom, to really be um, at the forefront of helping um, people of, of color to really understand and to really move the ball forward, um, both as people of color, but also in the allyship that happens with, with white Americans. And so thank you for your, for your, for your lead role in that. And I, uh, and I just wanted to um, say how much I appreciated your presentation today. Now, you're so right, Stephen, that this role of allyship is so important. And, you know, part of my discovery in this journey is looking back at a lot of the history I was never taught. And, and when you look at women's suffrage, um, you know, we talk about women earn the right to vote. Um, they couldn't change the law. It was the men that had to change it. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things as a white guy uh, with white privilege we have inherited that we don't even know. We don't even know about it. And uh, Yvonne can relate to this. And for February, our, another group, we did a presentation on black history of going through the, the slave, the, uh, the history we, we probably were not taught in school. And, and people are kind of like, wow, I didn't learn that. And you realize, yeah, it is racism. It is a system that uh, just wanted to tell us their side of the story and didn't want to tell us the full story. Um, and, and so there's still a lot. This is a, a never ending journey. And uh, sharing that with people and being able to use my white privilege, I think is, is good for crowds uh, to get them to think at it from a different angle. And that's the real challenge. I, the many years I've had in the Navy and then working at the college, it really is trying to get the light bulbs to come on. Um, you can train to your heart's content, you know, till the cows come home, uh, but that doesn't necessarily equate to learning. And, and so being able to try to relate to people and coming at them from different angles, I think is so critical. Okay. We have um, a bunch of questions in the chat. Thank you all for being on fire tonight. That's balls. Um, I'm gonna start with <laughs> Tim's question. 
Um, how can you help people start a conversation regarding race when they are afraid of being accused of being racist uh, if they want to learn and have questions? You know, that's a good question of how do you start this conversation? Um, and one is whenever the opportunity presents itself is to bring it up. And, and maybe you don't want to start out of saying you're racist uh, unless you need to do it, but call it from a different way of why do you say that uh, phrase I've heard is call in the person first and then call out the behavior. of Why do you say that? Um, what, because it, it's the racist acts that occur un, unknowingly in a lot of cases. I mean, sure, there are people that are racist to the point that they intentionally do things, but, but I would say that the vast majority are not intentional and, and we have to help them on this journey. Uh, and it requires courage on both ends. I'm a big Brene Brown fan uh, of courage, of being vulnerable. Uh, and that means you've gotta be willing to trip up occasionally uh, in, in this area. And one thing I have learned is DEI is a minefield um, that you've got to navigate through. And sometimes you're going to step in the wrong spot and sometimes you'll be in the right spot. A uh, little story on our history at the college, we had a big gender inequity issue and uh, we recognized it in our annual survey that we looked at where 80% of the women said we have a problem and 80% of the men said we don't have a problem. Um, we did a compensation review uh, at the different categories for assistant associate and full professorship and saw that there were some people that were definitely out of the, the normal bands. And like 80% of the people that were out below the band were women. And the college president made the decision is we're going to go out and make those adjustments. And he said, I'm gonna tell everybody what we found. And the lawyer said, no, don't do that. You're gonna open us up to more lawsuits. Um, but that was kind of you know, putting the action and words together that, that the women recognized he's really about this. The leadership is really committed to this. They're being honest with us and, and helped restore the trust that was not there before. But then the, the same individual uh, we increased the number of chairs because they were all, you know, at a college, you have chair of uh, philosophy for this named after some person. They were all named after guys and they were all filled by guys, uh, white guys. And uh, so we said we will create an additional number of chairs that we had the money for uh, named after famous women like the Grace Hopper chair of cybersecurity and the chair of uh, Condoleezza Rice of international relations um, and things of that nature. And so the president sent a draft email around to this closed group of, of the leaders and said, subject line, diversity, inclusion, way ahead. And said, I'm looking to name these following chairs. What do you think about this? And announced this to the college. And my feedback to him was, great, let's go for it, but let's talk about the communications. Um, this president was a little like our last president on Twitter with his emails. Uh, he didn't wait and the email came out with the same subject line, diversity and inclusion way ahead, instead of announcing it of that way. Now, here's where the minefield comes in. Half the women I talked to were happy that this was happening and the other half were offended because they saw it as tokenism. But you know, it's, it's one of those issues, you, you just don't know how it's gonna happen, but you, you gotta keep pushing, pushing forward. Okay, so we have a question from Brenda Blasingame, and um, she also had a comment earlier that I'd like you to uh, discuss. She uh, talked about diversity inclusion, but in her uh, her milieu, the, the, the conversation is more about justice and equity. Um, so one, I would like you to discuss sort of the interface of that, because to me, they're kind of all in one and the same, but the discussions seem to be very different. The second part is where are white men in this effort in the bigger picture? If we are in transformation, where are white men who are so often silent, passive and or resistant? Uh, please feel free to speak for all white men. <laughs> sure. <Go ahead. laughs> 
we're all on board. Okay. Next question. No. Um, you know, the, the, the issue, you know, in, in this area, like one of the ways when you hear diversity inclusion and you see these titles getting longer and longer, you know, chief diversity and inclusion officer, chief diversity, inclusion and belonging officer, you know, they keep adding the things on and, and there's a lot of issues you got to look at. It gets back down to the individuals and, and the, the system and the organization and the culture and the, the processes. Is, is there justice going on in how you are treating people? of how you're handling issues is is there equality and is there equity you know um this is a real challenge of trying to figure all this out um and and there's that stigma attached to diversity inclusion and we were talking earlier before everybody jumped on you know of employee engagement well what is employee engagement i think the national average is something like 47 percent 13 percent are actively working to you know, bat, destroy the organization they're working for. Um, why is that? You know, and, and typically we've looked at those issues of work-life balance, childcare, um, what the working conditions are, the, those type of things. But we haven't considered all those other factors. What's the culture of the organization? You know, am I valued as an individual? Are we treated uh, with equity or, or equally? with equity, recognizing the equity in that regards and, and making sure everybody has a, an equal opportunity to succeed. Are we investing fully in, in our people? Um, and, and, you know, you get into this large bureaucratic think of large organizations. We love the silver bullet. There's a silver bullet that's going to fix all of this, you know. Uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, we think the one size fits all training will accommodate everything. It doesn't. Um, most of this work, unfortunately, is done one on one. I think that's where most of the movement gets in, in these discussions. And so, how do you open this discussion of race? This is, I think, you've got to be vulnerable and engage people uh, in this. And I think in this past year, we've had discussions in the workplace that we have never seen before. And that is a good thing uh, because I, I believe the first step in the 12 step program is admitting you've got a problem and, and we're coming to that realization. And I think you're seeing a lot of leaders. Yes. Uh, so when you ask about where do most white men stand in this, I, I can't speak for them all, but I am seeing a lot of companies which are led by white guys starting to wake up and smell the coffee uh, to say we have a problem and we're, we don't know how to address it and we're gonna to try to fix it. And, and so I think the opportunity is here. We're headed in the right direction. Uh, you know, we'll never get there, uh, but we have to keep going. Thank you. You know what, um, Brenda, if you have a rejoinder, definitely post it in the chat. Um, I am gonna move on to Alicia's question. Uh, do you think the Navy has become more inclusive or is that a longer journey for such a large machine as the military? It, it, it has come a long way. It's still got a long way to go. Um, I, I think we see the same thing that we do in academia. Um, the diversity of the faculty does not represent the diversity of the student population. The student population tur turns over very frequently. <laughs> the, the turnover rate of academia is slow. Um, in the military, um, when you look at the officer ranks, it's not as diverse as the enlisted ranks. And there are still issues, but like, uh, just as I was joining the Navy um, back many years ago, we were having race riots on ships and stuff like that. We're beyond some of that, uh, but we've still got a long way to go. And we're seeing a lot of that, that we are making slow progress. I mean, it was just, We've come to a wake up in, for the military. Uh, I forget how many years it is now. I think it's getting close to 28 years of being an all volunteer force. Um, and we're starting to appreciate the people that everybody's there because they wanted to be that. That was not the case during the draft. Uh, if we look back at World War II era, the, the training was, was oriented toward the eighth grade learning ability. 
And we got kids entering the Navy right now in the enlisted ranks um, with college degrees or advanced degrees. And, and we're recognizing that we've got a lot of capability. And, and so they're slowly evolving. And, and one of the, the changes when they looked at diversity and inclusion that became of this is looking at the leadership and they focused on, they, they termed it inclusion and diversity, recognizing we've got a lot more emphasis we've got to do on inclusion to make the diversity happen. And so there is a big push to encourage people to make it a place where people up and, and there are problems. We're seeing that, you know, with the far extremist right groups uh, in the military is looking at how do you discover this stuff? Um, it's hard to uncover those things unless people have the courage to stand up and identify these things. And it gets back to knowing people, you know, building these relationships, uh, having talks with your people and, and seeing where they are, what their issues are, where they come from, what they're concerned for about, and you just can't treat them as a mass, which from the era of the draft, there was this big culture transition. We finally woken up and realized everybody's there because they want to be, you know, and uh, we don't have to treat them as free labor, you know, just give them all the, the work, just add more bodies to the problem. They're talented people and we're starting to take advantage of that. So I, I think it is working in that way to be more inclusive, it's still got a long way to go. go. And in the officer corps, it's got a, a lot more growth that it's got to do in, in the diversity in areas. But we, we are seeing it. We're definitely seeing it in the gender area. Uh, just saw an article the other day of three destroyer cap commanding officers are, are women, uh, one of them Hispanic. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to it's hard to reconcile uh, some of those strides in leadership with some of the violence that's happening against enlisted women on base. Um, how do you think the military's diversity and inclusion initiatives can help address that? Well, I, there, there's clearly a, a zero tolerance for that type of behavior. And we say that, but they have been trying to get at the issue of the culture of the organization and that changed the way they've approached the training. It, it first started out on sexual harassment and sexual assault training of slide presentations, just talking at people. And then they started having role, or, uh, role plays, small group workshops, uh, things of that nature to really start to reach people. And so the, the culture is starting to change in that regard. There, there's still issues out there, uh, unfortunately. Um, I think uh, it, it's no different than what's outside of the military because we are a reflection to some degree of what the, the general public is, but it is an issue out there and they're starting to recognize this. I mean, it used to, it just infuriated me when they said, we have to train on sexual assault because it's a crime. Why don't we train on robbery? Because we, we have robbery, you know, thievery going on board at ships at times. You have a, a robber in the birthing area stealing people's possessions and stuff, but we don't have training on that. Um, our philosopher <laughs> at the college had this whole, holy trinity, he called it, of the bureaucracy of the large organizations. Uh, when something bad happens, we fire the guilty person we create a new policy and we mandate new training. And that's why we, you know, the training list is more hours than there are in a day, more days in a year that, that you can do. We just keep putting band-aids on it without identifying what the real root cause is. And personally, I can't prove this, but my son, I'm supposed, I, I think that a lot of these issues reflect from the military culture of I, I can do. Uh, when the military got told to bring women into the military, we saluted smartly, said, we'll make it happen. Um, when we were getting ready to uh, repeal the don't ask, don't tell, and then even the transgender issue, we studied that intensely with sociologists, psychologists, organizational behavior specialists. We went out and people talked to the troops, talked to the leaders. Um, identified all the issues and, and tried to address those. We didn't necessarily have answers for them, but we went into it a lot smarter than I think we went into bringing women in. And, and 
the, the gay in the military went over relatively easy. Um, it has not become a big issue. It has been an issue for some isolated people because of their beliefs or whatever, but we have not had issues with that. I think, you know, thinking about it, you know, it's one of these things with our blind spots. If we can slow our thinking down um, and proceed with thought, deliberate thought as opposed to just reacting quickly with the, the fast brain, uh, we do a lot better. And I think that's been a difference between what's happened with gays and, and transgender in the military compared to how we brought women in the military. And we're seeing a lot of these results that we did not look at because we know what's gonna happen when you mix boys and girls together fresh out of high school. You see it at colleges. <laughs> okay. Um, this is gonna be our last question. We've only got a few minutes for it and I apologize because there's actually quite a few questions in the chat that aren't phrased as questions. Um, Dr. Latanya asks about how do you transform um, basically a culture or system who, that's already led by people who are racist? I mean, they're part of the problem. There's no people of color or people of different gender identity in leadership. And here you are kind of in the middle, upper middle management, trying to transform the culture. How can you possibly do that? Well, I wish I had the answer for that. That You know, you've got to keep working, I think, on the leadership uh, at the top. It gets back to, you know, that first step. They have to admit they've got an issue. Um, and I've had this discussion with other companies that are serious about trying to change this of how do I change it when I don't have the diversity to start with? It's kind of this catch 22 with, if I'm trying to attract talent, but people coming to look at this company to work there and I don't see people that look like me, I don't want to come there. So how do you get over this catch 22? Well, well own it, admit it up front. This is an area and, and make them feel valued as you're recruiting them. Um, go that extra mile uh, to give them, you know, that is equity, is recognizing that they're coming into an organization from a disadvantage of there's nobody there that looks like them. Um, and if you can't convince leadership at the top, this is going to be hard, I, I think. And I think that is part of the thing I saw a lot of companies were the top leadership was just saying, we want diversity, we are diverse. It's like, you don't even have a clue. Let's have a, that discussion. And you got to have that heart to heart and, and try to keep chipping away at it. I think working at the leadership, I mean, you're going to be spinning your wheels for a long time, but even if you can get one light bulb to kick, click on at the top, uh, perhaps they'll, they'll bring the, the, the rest a long way, but it's something you got to just keep chipping at. Um, okay. Unfortunately, yeah. there are organizations like that, that uh, are set in their ways at the top and, that's why we, we all say it has to start from the top, but that means they have to own it. They, they got to recognize, you know, we are not a diverse organization. We have issues. Uh, we need to uncover them and we need to work at it. And if, until they're ready to say that, it's going to be a lot of wheel spinning. I agree. And that just blew up the chat. I love that. Um, Mama <laughs> Yvonne said, you know, present the data, show them the numbers. This is what diversity is. This is what it does. You don't have it. You're headed, in, in my opinion, I'll just add on to that. You're headed for failure. An all-white organization will fail. The future of work is not in large organizations, nor is it in white male organizations. So, yep. Well, and, you know, that's where sometimes you, you approach it from a different angle and say, how can we make this organization more productive? You know, Times are challenging right now. It's a fast-moving world. We have to have an agile company. We've got to be able to flex. We need different opinions. We need to bring multiple heads together. How do we do that? Oh, we got to get different minds together. That's called diversity. You know, um, we got to go through that drill with them and, and kind of end around and back them into it and, and recognize, you know, at some point they'll say, oh my God, how did we get here? Um, but you're right. You know, you can show them the numbers that diverse organizations, but they focus on that diversity without recognizing what's, what that entails. You know, it, it requires a lot of work because we all know what happens when we get into a group with different opinions trying to come up with a plan. I mean, look, when you try to plan a meeting, well, who's free on this day? Who's free on that day? You know, uh, it, it's easy if everybody said, hey, I'm all free on this day. We can have a meeting that day. Uh, you quickly come to a, a conclusion and you get in that group thing. But uh, 
you know, it, it's a, a journey and, and you got to show them the numbers. And you, this is a battle of hearts and minds. You know, the minds will, the numbers will convince the minds, but winning the hearts over is hard. Okay. Okay. Well, I want to thank everybody for being here. And I want to thank Tom Bailey. Um, you know, sir, it's just nice to talk to you. <laughs> I don't know. It's like talking to my diversity dad. I love it. So I want to introduce two amazing younger folks. Uh, Maida and Carly are actually going to be hosting next week and we're doing something super different. Um, you know, we all talk about how we don't have enough conversation time and you can see in the chat, we don't have enough conversation time. <laughs> next week, we're doing a storytelling hour. Uh, we're going to break out into uh, smaller groups and uh, the framework of everything will be set out by Mena and Carly. And they're going to lead us in um, just having a really real conversation around who we are. Um, maybe, you know, diversity issues, absolutely. But they have done a lot of preparation. It's going to be fantastic. So grab your friends, prepare them you know, like clean out, you're going to need some Kleenex, maybe some water, maybe a Tums, I'm sad to say, you know, get yourself in there with your kit and get ready to talk to people on a real level because they have prepared something really fantastic. Okay. Well, without further ado, we're going to end on time. What? That's what happens when I facilitate. Awesome. For any of you who celebrate, we wish you a wonderful holiday weekend. Um, and uh, we wish you all continued good health, continue to stay safe, and uh, be happy and whole. Absolutely. All right. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you again for tuning into this special episode on the Leading People First podcast. We hope you can join us next time live as we come together to learn, activate, and empower to make a difference in the world. Again, we meet every Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific. You can find the group and next event on LinkedIn. If you'd like more information, feel free to reach out to me directly. All of the group information as well as my own is in the show notes. Don't forget to click that subscribe button to hear more of our conversations moving forward and share this episode. We're so excited that you've joined us in this movement. Let's go out into the world and lead together. Stay awesome.